For too long, history lessons have glossed over the truly essential contributions women have made to history. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. And if you love Brave Not Perfect, I have a feeling you'll love this show too. Encyclopedia Womanica from Wonder Media Network aims to change the narrative by introducing the pioneers, scientists, chefs, and more from the past to today who have shaped our society. Every weekday, host Jenny Kaplan dives into the trials, tragedies, and triumphs of this diverse group of groundbreaking women. And each episode is only five minutes long. The bite-sized episodes pack painstakingly researched content into fun, entertaining, and addictive daily adventures. You may or may not already know these women, but you definitely should. Subscribe to Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. It's Reshma. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, the show where we break away from the cult of perfection to live happier, bolder lives. Today, we're talking about bravery in space. That's right. I had the absolute joy and privilege to talk to NASA astronaut Christina Cook for this week's show. Christina holds the record for the longest single space flight by a woman and was up in space earlier this year. She was generous enough to make the time to be a guest for this year's virtual Girls Who Code Summer Immersion Program. And later in the show, I'm gonna share a brief but insightful conversation with my friend and National Women's March organizer, Jenna Arnold, about her new book called Raising Our Hands, how white women can stop avoiding hard conversations, start accepting responsibility, and find our place on the new front lines. So stay tuned. Great to be with you on this Thursday. I have been looking forward to this conversation literally all summer. Um, Christina, it is an honor to have you here. Uh, the last time we spoke, you were literally in space, like literally in space. Uh, one of the best things that happened last year was I got an email saying that, would you like to talk to Christina while she's in space? And I was like, of course. And my son and I got to take a tour uh, and to speak to you. And it was literally one of the best moments of my life. Uh, and then afterwards, we stayed in touch. I emailed you. You emailed me back. And I could tell everybody that I had a pen pal in space. But uh, I'm so honored to be talking to you. I, you have no idea how much of a role model that you are for this community, how many of the young women that are listening today aspire to be just like you. So I am so grateful to you for your time uh, and for all the wisdom that you are going to impart on us today. This summer, there are 5,000 girls that are learning how to code virtually. Um, Basically, when COVID happened, so many of our summer programs were in jeopardy of being shut down. And we said, no way. We've made incredible progress in closing the gender gap in computer science and technology. And so we doubled down. We said that we're going to teach more girls and we're going to make sure that we produce the next generation of astronauts. So we are so excited to have you with us. Um, so, Christina, first question. You have set the record for the longest space flight by a woman. And you've said before how you hope that it inspires the next generation of explorers. And I have no doubt that that's right. But it's hard. 
being the first or the second or even the third. And so many of our girls are like the first president of their robotics class or the only girl in their computer science class. What advice do you have for our girls who feel that it's hard or overwhelming to be the first? Well, first of all, Reshma, it is my pleasure to be with you. Uh, it was great speaking to you from space, and it is just a privilege to be a part of the Girls Who Code team. Thank you for everything you're doing, and thank you for inviting me. Um, to get to your question, you know, I agree. It can be isolating. It can be overwhelming. And I do have some strategies. I'm a big, big strategies person. And so um, for, for the feeling isolated part, that is very real. And one thing that's helped me is to share experiences. You know, there were times when um, my girlfriends who may not be in technical fields, I would feel like, oh, how can I talk to them about all these hardships and challenges I'm experiencing going through this astronaut training program? I mean, are they going to be, be able to relate? Um, but every single time I took a leap and, you know, talked to them, explained to them the things that were rough for me, how hard it could be at times, every single time they supported me, they understood and actually hearing their words talk about such a different realm and what had felt like a completely separate world. I would actually hear the words they told me when I was in those situations. I would hear, you know, my friend tell me like, you got this when I was in a spacesuit under the water training to do a spacewalk. And that brought those two worlds together and it made it feel a lot less isolating. So don't be afraid to share your experiences, even with people outside the technical realm. And next for isolation, be your authentic self. Um, you know, sometimes we feel like we have to be someone we're not because we might feel like we're representing our entire gender because we may be the only female in the room. Or maybe we just feel like we have to kind of make ourselves very neutral in personality just to fit in or not be noticed any more than we already are. What I found is that that can make us really amplify those feelings of isolation. And if you trust your coworkers and instead bring your authentic self, you might actually be surprised to find that your relationships actually grow. You actually may feel less alienated because you're being your authentic self and you are being accepted. So trust that. Um, there's also that overwhelming aspect to being the only person in the room. And for me, two things have really helped me. One is something I learned in pilot training, which is to chair fly situations. Think about something intimidating and going into it, something you might have the next day. Maybe it's as simple as speaking in a meeting where you're the only female voice in the room. Picture how all those eyes are gonna be right on you as soon as you open your mouth. And then picture moving through that feeling of discomfort and saying what you need to say and having it go over well in the room. Actually act that out and envision it. Um, and finally, I experienced something called stereotype threat, which might be where you think everyone else has a stereotype about you in the room. Um, spacewalking is a great example. Um, very, very few women have actually spacewalked in space, 15 women total, and over 200 men have. So when you get in that spacewalk pool, you might be thinking everyone's gonna roll their eyes in the control room every time you make a mistake. Instead, before you go into that situation, tell yourself over and over again, look around at the people around you and think, these people think I am awesome at spacewalking. Someone told them I'm really good at this. And somehow that actually can help you flip it and not be so worried about what everyone's thinking and instead focus on actually doing your best. I love that. You told me the story and it really stayed with me that when, you know, when you're in space, everybody's watching you. They have to watch you, right? Because they're watching you from the control room. And so you got to get over real fast 
uh, this feeling of like, I'm going to make a mistake. Oh my God, they're laughing at me. What do they think about me? What do they think I'm doing? Like you have to get over that real fast. And so I love, I do that. Like, Ooh, they think I'm awesome. Like, and you're constantly telling yourself a different narrative. Exactly. Um, Replace that narrative. Yeah. And that's really helped me. Um, so it's so incredible to see the first all female spacewalk and it was everywhere. I sent you the Super Bowl ad that Olay did with, um, girls who code about this and really just celebrating the awesomeness of female explorers and including yourself. And you talk about how special it was to do it with Jessica. And I loved seeing these moments of support between the two of you Sisterhood is such a huge part of our work at Girls Who Code. And so I wanted to ask you, like, what does sisterhood mean to you? Well, it's taken on a huge meaning as astronauts. Um, all of us call each other's our astro brothers and sisters. So Jessica and Anne and, you know, all the people I've trained with are all my astro sisters. And it was really awesome to experience that in, you know, in space and kind of contributing to something that we both think is so important. You know, we we invented spacewalk hair um, before our spacewalks or be a spacewalk French braiding hair session to make sure that, you know, our hair was going to stay inside the comm cap, not come out and interfere with the spacewalk. Um, and we did that while we were briefing our spacewalk safety tips, which had to be done before the spacewalk anyway. So, um, you know, and also talking through um, some of the the things that may have made us anxious with it being the, the first that it was um, and having that be a conversation that we had with each other and supporting each other through right alongside with the technical preparation. So it was a wonderful thing. I've always advocated supporting each other. And I think for women and young women, it's even more important because we do have those shared experiences that can mean a lot to each other. And we have that understanding of where each other is in what they're going through. So um, to me, I think sisterhood is about making sure that you actually prioritize supporting your sisters in that way. Make time for it, even if you're busy and even if they haven't asked for it, make time for that. Um, do it selflessly and, and with a true desire to just spread the love. I think that that builds a sense of trust. It builds a bond. And that bond is a bond of resiliency. It's a bond of bravery. And it makes sure that we are ready to put our best foot forward at all times. And I think that bond and that trust can be so strong that that relationship and sisterhood can be to the whole next level where it becomes a place where we can be true sounding boards. We can offer constructive feedback that's taken, um, you know, without raising any defense mechanisms and just in a, in a true sense. I think that when we get to that level, we really, really make sure that um, we're elevating each other. We're having shared successes. You know, Jessica's successes were my successes. Um, and I think that that just sort of feeds forward. It means not only we are all achieving our best, but we're giving the best back to the world. Yeah, I was just listening to you earlier in the green room and you were talking about another mission. You're like, yeah, I hope I get chosen. But if not, I'm so excited that I'm going to know the person who is or who does. And I thought that that was such a, so unique to hear that and such a powerful perspective that I want to teach and leave our young people with. And I, I, where does that come from? I mean, did you, that, that sense, I mean, of like almost like, um, celebrating competition and we all kind of move together forward. Yeah. You know, um, kind of riding that line between competition and shared support was something that I've done a lot of thinking about ever since being selected to be an astronaut because the eight of us went through training together. So you can imagine there's this huge opportunity to either compete and, you know, keep each other down or, or really do it collectively. And our class, uh, thanks to some of the leadership of our class leader, set the tone right at the beginning that 
success for us meant everyone's success and shared success. And so that just kind of became our mantra and our ethos. And it carried us through. And even when, you know, we're talking about, oh, which of the eight of us is going to get the first astronaut uh, flight assignment, I, I truly felt and told people at the time, I can't imagine being happier if I had gotten it or if one of, you know, any of my crewmates or training mates had gotten it. And that's how I felt at the time. And um, it's just wonderful to be a part of something that feels that authentic and, um, you know, has that much trust. Um, I love reading about your other interests, rock climbing, surfing. I'm I'm still trying to learn how to surf. Um, And my favorite story is about how you quit, uh, you, you quit a job being a NASA engineer to go to Antarctica. And our girls are young. And it's easy to feel lost and unsure about the path you're you're selecting. You know, what advice do you have for girls who are exploring other interests, who are, you know, are giving them kind of strength or courage and thinking about how their journeys may look different than they thought yeah. they were going to look? You know, when I was in my career, like you mentioned in your question, um, leaving a perfectly good engineering job at NASA to go work at the South Pole for a year, I had a lot of people question that one. And then I kept doing seasonal work and really remote science bases. And I actually had family members asking me, you know, Christina, why don't you think you can hold down a job? You know, what what's your problem? Um, and just... I, I really struggled with that. Um, I wondered if maybe they were right. I wasn't meeting their expectations and whatnot. Um, And also, I wasn't sure how my career path was going to pan out either. You know, maybe I was making the wrong decisions. And so what I found, again, it goes back to trusting to involve people in your journey. Explain to people why you're doing what you are passionate about, why it drives you. And, you know, even if it's tough to speak the technical language and say, oh, I really love, you know, JavaScript. Um, talk about maybe the you know things that are more relatable. And I think I found that when I really took the time to explain some of my choices and my hopeful career paths to people, it really endeared them to it more and made them more accepting. And then we were all on the journey together and that really helped. So you went from isolation to isolation, right? <laughs> you landed in February, right? Yes. And that was when the global health crisis had pretty much just begun. You probably had a lot of things and hopes and dreams of what you're going to do when you returned and the trips you were going to take and the food you're going to eat and the places you were going to see and all that shit changed. How did you accept that? You know, um, for me, it was a little bit about reframing. I, I learned something started at the South pole when I worked there for a year, I continued it on the international space station, which was all about reframing every time I would hear myself or, you know, in my mind thinking, Oh, I just wish I could do X, Y, Z. I just wish this were over. I just wish, wish this, I would replace it with, well, something that I had in the present that was unique that I would never have again, that I knew I would miss one day. And if I just worked really hard at always reframing that and, and, you know, doing that, it really helped me to be happy in the present, to accept the present. Um, You know, a tangible example of that would be to keep a journal, like you could say a gratitude and a goal journal. Gratitude journal, you know, keeps you grounded, tells you what are the things you actually do appreciate, the silver linings about the situation. For me, yeah, I couldn't travel or go to restaurants, all these things I had maybe been missing out on. But what I could do is really get acclimated at my house again and feel at home here again. And then goals, 
there are certain things that we may actually be able to accomplish during this time of isolation that actually would be more difficult to accomplish at other times. So if you focus on things you want to do right now, you actually might find that you're, you automatically start to reframe and you want more time to get those things done. So that's why I say a goal and a gratitude journal kind of put those two things together and help with that reframing. Yeah. Okay. So question from Julia in Virginia, how do you encourage diversity in the astronomical field? And why do you think diversity is important in your field? Well, I think one way we encourage it is by just looking at how we've been doing business and evaluating the things that might not have been encouraging it from the beginning. Um, And one of those ways is with language. We used to actually call the place that I work, the Johnson Space Center, the Manned Space Flight Center. And uh, it's not called that anymore. It's called the Human Space Flight Center. So we've changed a lot of our language to make sure that it's more inclusive. And that's not only symbolic. I think that it helps us all not get pigeonholed into a certain vision of what an astronaut should look like or be. Um, Another thing we've been doing, and this has been going on for a while at NASA, I used to do these type of events, even when I had my first job at NASA in 2003, which is to recruit from diverse places. So I went to HBCs at the NASA booth and would relate my experiences um, as a North Carolinian. And so we actively reach out um, to talent pools that might not otherwise be tapped um, in the past. Um, But I think the biggest part is that our leadership is now recognizing that we need to go by all and for all. And that if we don't go on this journey together, we're not truly answering humanity's call to explore, which is our goal and our calling. And so it's not worth even pursuing if we're not pursuing it together. And so setting that bit up front allows us that to make sure that everything else falls in place. Um, another example is with spacesuits. Right now, um, the spacesuits for the next planetary exploration are being designed to fit all the way down to a 1% female to a 99% um, male size range. And they've completely revamped how they do it so that they're actually starting with the small suits and sizing up rather than going the other way around, which is how the original suits were made. Um, So just seeing actual practices, you know, come into place like that are, is really encouraging. That's amazing. That's, that's so interesting. So a a few questions from our students on this, including Haley um, and Aya, how did you adjust to life back on earth after being in space for so long? And what is adjusting to gravity like? It was definitely a process. Um, we are actually assigned a trainer that has been working with us throughout our flight on you know, exercise and things like that. And we have a specific 45-day program where we work with that trainer for two hours a day just to get our bodies um, back to being able to function in gravity. When you first come back, you, even just lifting your, your arm feels really difficult. You feel like you have like bowling balls hanging all over your body in different places because every time you move, you're just not used to kind of that feedback of having a weight to carry around. So the first challenge is moving around, learning how to walk again, things like that. And then um, it kind of evolves where after you learn how to walk, you kind of get into where, okay, you're uh, getting a little bit more 
uh, better and coordinated. Now there's also the mental aspect of coming back. Uh, for 11 months when I was on board the space station, I only saw 11 other humans. So, um, you know, when I popped out of that capsule in Kazakhstan, I saw like 10 times more people than I had seen in the last year in front of me. And uh, yeah, you definitely was a, a feeling of being overwhelmed. Um, you know, just processing that many faces and interacting so much was definitely difficult. I know um, before the whole stay at home orders came, there were a couple weeks there. Um, and I remember going out into the world grocery stores and whatnot. And I would almost be like a deer in headlights when I had to speak to someone that I didn't know well. So just reacclimating, giving yourself permission to that it's going to take time. Um, a lot of the things take several, several months even to kind of come back online. I, I said that I didn't really feel normal again until about three months after I got back. Um, and just, again, there were moments where I just wanted to not be dizzy, you know, it had been a while and, um, just being patient, I think is the most important thing. Yeah. I think it's an important lesson for all of us to hear, even in this moment right now, because, uh, you know, life is very different and, you know, you're not seeing a lot of humans or you're not interacting with a lot of people. There's like, how many zoom calls can you really actually do? Absolutely. It is tough. It is tough. Um, you know, I only saw my husband over zoom chats for 11 months and it just gets old after a while. So, um, definitely relate to that. And, um, hopefully there's other countermeasures we can do to just still feel connected. Exactly. Question from Ashley in Virginia. What advice would you give to your younger self? And I want to know what, what was younger Christina like? What was she like? Well, younger Christina, you know, I first became inspired to be a space geek and an astronaut when I was really young. And it was all by looking up at the night sky. I lived in a small town in North Carolina, so we could see the stars at night. And I would just ponder kind of my place in the world. I used to say I love things that made me feel small. I love the ocean, you know, anything that made me realize there was so much out there to explore. So that's where I drew my first inspiration from. And then um, kind of just built on that. I was big into playing outdoors. I was always in my backyard. I was always building things in the shed, um, trying to or creating things. My mom would help me with projects um, out of craft books. My dad would help me build tables and furniture and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and so I was just, I, I love to, to kind of always be active. Um, you know, if I could tell my younger self anything, I would have embraced teamwork a lot younger. I was one of those fiercely individual people that loved solving problems on my own. Um, I loved just working by myself in the shed and, and, um, building things maybe and, and anything that came up. I liked knowing that, uh, you know, if I tried hard enough, I could figure it out. And it wasn't until actually my astronaut career, or maybe, you know, sometime before that working with a team on, at NASA space science missions, where I really started to embrace just the joy and the extra benefits of teamwork and recognizing that there was nothing wrong with accepting help with, um, you know, delegating different people's skills and that there was a place for not always just feeling like you had to beat your head against the wall until you figured it out yourself. So that's what I would have told my younger self. Question from Tiffany in New Jersey. Um, I love your piece of advice of do what scares you. What would you say the first step towards facing your fears would be? I think the first step is to identify the ones that are the right ones to pursue. I think that um, there are healthy fears and then there are fears that we have maybe because uh, of our own lack confidence or things that we just can't see ourselves doing, but it's actually something that is true to our heart. Um, so an example of that would be, I am a very, I'm very passionate about, um, 
you could say human rights and, um, and equality and things like that. Um, and I've always wanted to start an organization that worked toward those goals, but I've also always been afraid to just start something on my own. Um, you know, I'm afraid of failure, afraid of even just the logistics of putting it together. But I recognize that that is, a fear that is, it's not there to keep me from doing it. It's actually just something that is going to make it all the better when I do accomplish that goal. Um, because the fact that it is intimidating just means that I have to step it up. And when I do, then I'll not only realize that goal and, and realize that passion and see it through, but I'll know that there's another set of things that I was able to overcome. And so I'd say that identifying the right thing, that's kind of that balance of it scares you, but kind of for the right reasons and that will give you the most payoff in the end. Yeah. I think it's so, um, one of the things I've learned, like I, I do think that we learned very early on to give up before we even try. So when you're about to do something that scares you, like apply for a job or run for office or start a business or, you know, do something at school that makes you scared, that feeling kind of ends up in the pit of your stomach and it, you're starting to feel uncomfortable. Maybe you're sweating. Right. And that feeling is very like, we're not used to that feeling because yeah. normally when we feel that way, we walk away from whatever that thing is. So what I've been doing is finding the physical things that make me feel that way. So I'm terrified of going downhill on my bike, right? I'm, I hate, I'm not the person who's going to like jump into the pool in the deep end, right? Like anything that makes, so when I, so I like solicit and actively look for those things physically, whether it's rock climbing or going a little bit faster on my sprints, right? That, that's going to like scare me. So I get almost comfortable with that pit in my stomach. Oh my God, I don't want to do this feeling and just doing it. And then the euphoria that comes comes from doing it because yeah. you feel so alive. Gosh, I could not have stated that any better. And I totally agree. I just recently went rock climbing again for the first time in years since I stopped when I got assigned to my mission. And I felt some of those feelings for the first time. And I remember working through them when I was really getting into the advanced stages of rock climbing before all that. And I remember thinking, this is awesome training. I have that feeling. I'm acknowledging it and I'm working through it. And I, I just couldn't agree more. I mean, because when you were taking off in the, in, in, in the, the, the spaceship, I mean, didn't you feel sick? Like you you wanted to just throw up or like throw the doors open and like run out? Well, actually, interestingly, there were times when I was nervous, but launch day was not one of them. Um, they Sometimes people will say that astronauts are the calmest people in the room on uh, the rocket launch day. And I found that to be true. We just are doing the same thing we've done a million times in simulation. It's just we, you know, we actually blast off at the end of it. Um, but there were times when I did feel that way. And uh, one of them that comes to mind is when I, my first spacewalk. I was in the airlock and my colleague Nick opened the hatch and I looked down how I was positioned. I had to kind of maneuver my body to see out the hatch. And suddenly where there had been the floor was a big gaping black hole that was outer space. And we were in a night pass, so you couldn't see anything. And my heartbeat went through the roof for about 10 seconds um, before, you know, again, worked through that feeling, got it down. But that those 10 seconds of knowing I had to go out there and I couldn't say no anymore at this point um, was definitely, yeah, something to work through and a perfect example. Um, question from Taylor in New York. What are some unique challenges about being in space? I think one of the unique challenges is to remain vigilant. And that means two different things. One, vigilant in the everyday aspect of 
you know, even though the engineers at NASA have made our life feel very comfortable and normal, we are still amid a hostile environment where things could change at any minute and we'd have to rely on our training, you know, to make sure that ourselves and our crewmates are safe. And so kind of always being ready for that, not letting your training um, go by the wayside, you know, doing continual education for yourself if you need to. So that's one way that we had to stay vigilant and also not letting that kind of overwhelm us on a day-to-day basis and still kind of working through the normal work day, even though right outside that glass pane is the vacuum of space. Um, and then the other way is something I think is really important right now is this, you know, our quarantine period is just kind of going on and on and things aren't quite normal is um, staying vigilant for recognizing the uniqueness of the situation that you're in. Um, you can It can be easy to let your guard down. It can be easy to stop being your best self and using those you know strategies and countermeasures to work through the difficulties that are ahead of you, but you have to stay vigilant and keep doing those. Recognize the good things about the unique environment that you have and um, continue to recommit to being your best self, um, you know, despite the, the hardships that you might see in front of you. I love that, Christina. I mean, that's that's also like probably for you, years of training your bravery muscle and your mental muscle, right? To kind of stay active and to see it for what it is and not let your mind go too far ahead where you start getting anxiety and fear. Um, question from Allison. What was the most challenging thing in your career? Ooh, the most challenging thing in my whole career. Um I would have to say it was the astronaut candidate years. When we're first chosen to be astronauts, for two years, we're doing all kinds of different training. And I called it, um, you know, learn five new professions year. And I also would joke with my friends that my job was to go into work and be and be really bad at something that I was just learning. In the beginning, it felt like a mountain was ahead of me. I had to learn how to spacewalk. I had to learn how to speak Russian. I had to learn how to fly high-performance jets. Um, I had to learn how to operate the robotic arm, learn all about the space station. I had to transform my culture from one of academia to a more, you know, military style culture. And um, so many different things about that were just so daunting. It felt like it would never be over. Uh, And I had to just remember that taking it one day at a time was the most important thing. Um, There were times when I was studying when I would literally set a two minute timer and study one page of stuff for two minutes, then turn the page. So I was actually taking that mountain of work in two minute increments. And that was how I got through it sometimes. I love this next question. Okay. Question from an anonymous attendee. I think when we were all younger, all of us have said, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up as we stared at that starry sky. But like you said, we feel so small in those moments And while that can be good, it can also be overwhelming. How did you get over that endless feeling of impossibility that has been set? And I think what she's saying is that has been set for us as women. Definitely. Um, I, I completely agree. And sometimes I ask myself that same question. Why didn't I grow out of wanting to be an astronaut like everyone else, especially when I grew up in a small town where not only did I not see engineers, I definitely never saw female engineers. And I'm not sure why I was so positive that I was going to become a female engineer and work towards being an astronaut, except for a couple things. One is I was just so passionate about it. I was true space geek from the beginning. I absolutely loved it. And so to me, there was just no question that I would keep trying. Secondly, I credit my mentors, coaches, teachers. For some reason, even though this 
little girl in Jacksonville, North Carolina was telling them that she wanted to be an astronaut. None of them discouraged me. I did hear disparaging remarks about women, you know, like we all did growing up, but I was never personally discouraged from pursuing my goal. And I think that really helped a lot. And um, one thing I say to people is I was very fortunate that I had people telling me I could do it, that I was going to do great things one day. But not all of us have that. And I say that if you don't have someone telling you that, tell yourself that. Tell yourself every day you are going to do something great one day. And tell your friends that too. And I think that that can really help us overcome this feeling of grandeur around it. I still experience that today. Um, I don't necessarily experience it in the size of the universe, but I experience it when I read about all the awesome things that people are doing out in the world. And I think, oh my gosh, how could anything I do make a difference? Ah, if you went and to space. That's something I have to overcome. So it's it's interesting um, where we each have that feeling embodied and how we have to work through it in different ways. Um, but again, I actually use that same strategy of telling myself I can do something great one day. Um, it doesn't matter that a bunch of people are also doing great things. I always remember when we first spoke, I had just done an interview with Hillary Clinton and she was so geeked out that I was talking to you and I was telling you that. And you're like, Hillary Clinton knows who I am. I'm, I just started laughing. I was like, but we all have that. I tell, I said it to myself. I'm like, I don't feel like I've done anything in my life. And when people are like, thank you so much for everything. It, it's, it's crazy. And it's because, again, we were raised to be modest and to make okay. ourselves small and to be humble. And so we don't celebrate our accomplishments. Um, last question. So, yeah. All of the amazing young students right now are building something and they're building something in their activist toolkit because I believe that young girls are going to heal us and they're going to save us. And if you think about every movement from Black Lives Matter to climate change, they have been led by young people. They have been led by young women. And so if you could build one thing, what would it be? What's the problem you would solve and what would it be called? Ooh, that's a great question. Well, I have actually been coding a little bit since I got back. I'm basically at the level of a Girls Who Code student, and but um, I received, so I'll tell you a quick story. I received a postcard in the mail from my four-year-old niece, and all it said in like barely legible writing was, Aunt Tina, let's build an app. And I thought, that's interesting. So I called them and um, turned out she wanted me to make her an app. So I thought, well, I don't know how to do that, but I'm going to figure it out. So I actually, we, I consulted with her, found out that um, she would like a journal app and or I proposed that she was into it. So I taught myself how to code and I wrote a little gratitude journal for her and then her brother wanted one. So I wrote that too. So that um, that's something I've been working on and that was actually accomplishable at my level of coding. But if I were more advanced in, um, you know, or could start a whole movement, something that I'm really passionate right now about and I have been ever since I volunteered in this area in college is adult literacy. I think there's a lot of empowerment that can happen there. And in my town that I live in now, there's actually not an adult literacy center. So I'd really like to start one. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about how right now, you know, there's in-person things are a little bit on hold. So I thought I'd really love to make an adult literacy app and have it be something that people could have on their phones and wouldn't necessarily look like a literacy app. So they could be comfortable doing it anywhere, no matter who was watching, um, but learning at the same time. So that's something that I've been thinking about. And as for what to name it, I think, um, you know, I'm inspired by the phrase take up space. And so I think I would just call it take up 
Um, and it can be, you know, take up whatever you want, take up yourself, uh, take up a new hobby, um, and take up space too. Oh, I love that. What an awesome story. Um, tell your niece, we said hi and uh, welcome to the girls who code community. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christina. This was such a, an amazing conversation and I am always in awe of you. We are always in awe of you. And there are literally so many young women watching right now and you've inspired them to be explorers and to be astronauts and to make that possible and not feel impossible. That was NASA astronaut Christina Cook speaking with me for the Girls Who Code Summer Immersion Program speaker series. Coming up, I've got another insightful conversation to share with my friend, Jenna Arnold. We'll get right back to our episode in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about a podcast I think you'll really enjoy. Shelter in Place is a show about coming together in a world that's pulling us apart. It's hosted by Laura Joyce Davis, an award-winning fiction writer and Fulbright scholar, whose life with three young kids in California has been turned upside down in the pandemic. What makes Shelter in Place special is the way that Laura thoughtfully deals with issues, connecting her story to the cultural moment with humor, humility, and a lot of heart. I'll let Laura tell you a little more. This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Each day, and the amount of time it takes to enjoy a good cup of coffee, I share stories that are helping me survive right now. Stories that live in the tension between joy and grief that remind us that even when we're at our worst, we're not alone. I hope you join me for Shelter in Place on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you listen. To end today's show, I want to take a moment to share a conversation with my friend and National Women's March organizer, Jenna Arnold. She recently came out with a book called Raising Our Hands, How White Women Can Stop Avoiding Hard Conversations, Start Accepting Responsibility, and Find Our Place on the New Front Lines. It's an important book that lays out the political power and responsibility that white women have in standing up for what's right and pushing for meaningful change. Jenna was kind enough to take the time to tell me about her new book, the role white women played in the 2016 election, and what's changed since then. So why did you write this book and what do you hope that people get out of it? And FYI, I have so many friends that are reading it and they love it. So I wrote Raising Our Hands because it was a book I needed to read. And when I picked my head up high enough to look for resources or find organizations that were specifically focused on helping educate white women about the things that we didn't see or we didn't know, I couldn't find them anywhere. So I dove into asking hard questions of myself in the context of the state of the world today, in the context of the stories that we tell ourselves, and surrounded by lots of other white women from so many different demographics across the country. And I found some universal truths and I found things that made us extraordinarily different. And I wrote this book because I needed the truth in my hands. Yeah, I think people who've been reading it have said that it's been a good primer. You know, and I think it's especially, I think why I know a lot of friends are reading it is because we have a big election this November. And we know that 53% of white women voted for Trump in the last election. What role do you think that white women are going to play this time around? White women are going to 
potentially decide the election again. There is a strategy that I'm laser focused on, which is how can we engage white women and how can we engage white women engaging other white women or the other people in their communities around the significance of presidential elections. I found pretty consistently in my research in these listening circles that I hosted with white women where they would say things like, well, I didn't vote uh, in 2016 because there wasn't a perfect candidate, or I don't really understand the issues, or the issue that I care about wasn't something that was discussed at debate, so I opted out of participating. And one of the statistics that I still have a hard time wrestling with is the extraordinary power of the white female voting block. It's larger than any other voting block in the country. And the hypothesis, the mathematical hypothesis, suggests that she will continue to control um, the electoral state in the country through 2060. Um, based on geography, she'll still control 56 Senate seats. You know, what I find fascinating is that when you think about who the Trump voter is, who we blame on the other side, right? It's like a white guy. But really what we're saying, it was really white women who put them into power. Many times white women don't claim that. Why do you think that is? Is that guilt? Is that shame? Is that, have we let them get away with it? Yes. (laughs) Um, Say more. There's... um, Immediately after the election, so November 9th, 2016, I started receiving emails from white women across the country who would say things like, well, I voted for Trump, but I voted for him in whatever state it was. So my vote didn't really count. So they were suddenly like doing these, what I like to call cognitive acrobatics to convince themselves that their behavior or their decisions or the things that they've done might not be as bad or might not be as consequential as I would argue that they are. And so what I found in the research I'm doing currently, even though the book is done, I'm still knee deep in having conversations, is that so many white women who were opting out of conversations or voting or participating going into the 2016 election because our polls suggested that there was a front runner and she was going to close the deal, that they're now paying attention in ways that they haven't. And they're rethinking how they're going to enter the voting booth because some of the men in their lives are like, well, no, we still have to protect our finances. And particularly in a pandemic state where everyone's a little uncomfortable around their jobs, there's this desire to like be fiscally conservative, which tends to lean one party. So there's a lot of like sometimes tiny justifications for why he might make sense. But what they do is they're starting to reconstruct the algorithm that they're going to take into the voting booth, which is going to give them permission to vote differently November 3rd. That was my friend and National Women's March organizer, Jenna Arnold, talking about her new book, Raising Our Hands, and the power white women have in November's election. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode of Brave Not Perfect. I'd so appreciate it if you subscribed and took a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. You can join me in learning how to be braver and letting go of perfection every other Tuesday. Bye. Hi, I'm your executive producer, Oliver Ash Klein. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Today's episode was also made possible by my co-producers, Tanya Zaparonic and Charlotte Stone. And of course, our fearless team leader, Deborah Singer. 
Andrea Jordan, Reshma Sajani, Ashley Gramby, Gloria Noel, Aaron Page, Zenzele Skylark, Elisa Dwyer, and Raven Abreu also contributed to the making of this episode. See you in two weeks.